Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The Senate takes up the National Defense Authorization Act as appropriations hang in the balance. Meanwhile, a week overflowing with political antics from Tommy Tuberville's continuing hold on nominations to Pramila Jayapal's calling uh, Israel a racist state and much, much more. We'll tell you what it means for national security. After nixing its grain deal with Ukraine, Russia moved to blockading and destroying Ukrainian grain and supporting infrastructure and threatening any ship that would move these supplies through the Black Sea. We discuss how Washington and the world needs to respond. And Wagner Group CEO Yevgeny Prigozhin is back in action, this time in Belarus, along with his troops, where they are training Belarusian troops uh, as frontline NATO nations bolster their defenses against what they see as a threat. Pentagon Asia Chief Eli Ratner told Congress uh, that the U.S. defense industrial base is unable to fulfill contracts for Taiwan as higher priority is given to refilling America's stocks and sending weapons to Ukraine, a message that Republicans eager to end support for Kiev have seized on. And Bibi Netanyahu continues to press ahead with his controversial judicial reforms despite widespread protests as Israel's president, Isaac Herzog, uh, addresses a joint session of Congress. Joining us today to discuss the week in Washington and around the world are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson, the president of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend of the Center, for a new American security, who is also the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anybody uh, interested in the Transatlantic Alliance, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, welcome back uh, to the program. We're all back <laughs> where we're roughly all supposed to be, as opposed to in Riyadh, a Boston airport, uh, and and elsewhere. So I'm glad we're uh, in in a more stable audio environment. Uh, Michael, uh, Senate has taken up the NDAA. We talked about that a little bit uh, last week. How is this all uh, playing out? Because very divergent views between what the House uh, has done and what some in the Senate would like to see. Oh, you're right. Uh, and it's also uh, not just the substance, but the form as well, because you know, last week we talked about how the partisan and chaotic process uh, that became of the NDA in the House. This week, uh, and I think we'll continue to see next week, more of a, a civilized and, and bipartisan process when it comes to the Senate NDAA. It started earlier this week when they voted to advance consideration of the NDAA, and it was an overwhelmingly bipartisan vote, 72 to 25. Uh, they've been considering amendments this week. We'll continue to do so next week. There are 872 amendments filed to the Senate NDAA. Uh, most of which will not get consideration. But, you know, the Senate did start out early this week with a bipartisan uh, manager's package. They took 21 Democratic proposals, 21 Republican proposals, nine bipartisan proposals, and passed them together, uh, 51 amendments together, including provisions on China, uh, Taiwan, uh, AI, AUKUS, and you know, my favorite subject, UFOs, uh, that was pushed by Senator Schumer. Uh, at a time when the House is also going to start hearings next week on UFOs, the House Oversight Committee is going to begin that process. Uh, there, you know, most amendments are really not that controversial. Uh, one I think that was important that did pass was Senator Tim Kaine uh, from Virginia uh, had an amendment to block uh, the president from withdrawing from NATO without a two-thirds vote of the Senate. Uh, fortunately, that was adopted. Um, there were some significant ones that did fail, though. Uh, Senator Rand Paul had an amendment that failed overwhelmingly. Uh, his amendment would have affirmed that Article 5 of the NATO Treaty does not supersede uh, the U.S. constitutional requirement for Congress to declare war. Uh, another amendment failed overwhelmingly by Senator Mike Lee that would have permitted just 2% of the funding authorized in the bill to support Ukraine to be used until all countries in the NATO alliance spend at least 2% of their GDP uh, on defense. Uh, now, we've talked earlier about how the Senate process, uh, when they mark up their bill, is a closed process. So we're still learning about things that happened when the Senate marked up their bill many weeks ago. Uh, and one thing of interest was that Senator Wicker, who's the ranking Republican, actually introduced an amendment during the markup to raise the top line uh, to $25 billion, uh, uh, by $25 billion. 
and uh, that failed in a party line vote. But, you know, that's far from the end of the discussion on defense spending. It's a great segue into where we are on on appropriation. Give us a sense on where we are on appropriations and your gaming about uh, shutdown, because you you were you're increasingly moving into that corner. Yes. And we see a huge uh, dichotomy between the House and the Senate. So we'll start with the Senate. Uh, You know, the Senate has said earlier this week that uh, they are going to add $14 billion in additional emergency spending to their FY24 uh, spending bills. Uh, Over half of that, $8 billion, would go to increasing the Pentagon's uh, top line. Uh, About $2 billion of that would go to Homeland Security and Labor HHS, uh, about $1.4 billion to state and foreign ops, and the remaining funds would be spread uh, across the commerce justice uh, science accounts. And, you know, this is bipartisan. This is Patty Murray, who chairs the committee, Susan Collins, who's the ranking Republican, uh, you know, said together that the Senate's going to deploy the use of emergency money just as we do every year as appropriate to address in a bipartisan fashion some of the pressing challenges that our nation faces. And uh, there was one voice uh, of displeasure. It was kind of surprised. Senator Joe Manchin uh, came out actually strongly against it, uh, saying it's just plain wrong it takes us off the promising path we have started to get our fiscal house back in order. And really, I mean, this should come as no surprise, right? I mean, when the Republicans agreed to sign on to the debt ceiling legislation, they got commitments from their leadership and the Democrats, too, that there would be uh, supplemental spending. And this, uh, this small you know, portion, this $14 billion, does not include you know, a broader deal, which hopefully will come together on Ukraine um, you know, and, and disaster relief. Uh, at the same time, uh, Senator Wicker wants to continue to put pressure on the administration uh, to send over supplemental. He has said that he is now going to block uh, the submarine transfer as part of the AUKUS pact with Australia. Uh, he wants the administration to request supplemental funding uh, for those subs and for other Pentagon-related matters, which most likely would include you know, Ukraine as well. Now, over in the House, things on appropriations are far less civilized. Uh, they have so far marked up uh, at a full committee uh, 10 of their 12 uh, spending bills, uh, but it's gotten quite contentious and tempers are really flaring in the house. And I'll I'll, I'll talk about that more in a little while. Um, But this week they were marking up, for example, the transportation uh, HUD bill in full committee. And it got so heated that they had to adjourn three separate times. And something really unprecedented happened in that markup where they actually rescinded markups, uh, earmarks that were already agreed to in subcommittee mark by both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, There was an amendment uh, to cut uh, LGBTQ centers from the transportation HUD bill, uh, one in Massachusetts, uh, two in Pennsylvania. And these are centers that provide counseling services, networking and social events like art exhibits, other services, uh, and advocate for the LGBTQ community. Uh, and, you know, Rosa DeLauro, who's the senior Democrat on the Appropriations Committee, came out saying the mutual trust in the earmark process has been destroyed in the House. It's very serious. Uh, and there are still two more bills, the Labor HHS bill and the CJS bill, that need to be marked up in full committee and, uh, in order to go to the floor. And right. that causes a problem for all the bills, right? Because right next week, um, McCarthy was hoping to put the agriculture appropriations bill on the floor and the, and the Milcon VA bill on the floor. Fairly, uh, not, those bills are fairly less controversial. But the right-wing Freedom Caucus does not want to see those bills considered until all 12 bills have been reported out of committee, and they are threatening World War III uh, on, on, on spending uh, and, uh, you know, actually using lo- lots of expletives, one called uh, FAFO, F around, F around and find out, apparently, uh, from some of their leaders, because uh, they want to see all the bills before they start considering one of them. And, you know, as of today, you know, we have 14, le- uh, 16 legislative days left in the House until we have a shutdown. Um, so we have four days left this week, and then the House will break for six weeks. So McCarthy has 12 days in September to not only deal with appropriations, stave off a shutdown, uh, but also he has to deal with FAA reauthorization and an expiring far- farm bill. Um, uh, there is uh, a lot more uh, to uh, discuss, uh, but I want to go um, to uh, the uh, the antics. Um, and obviously, lawmakers are great for uh, sometimes for entertainment value, but this is significantly less so. Tommy Tuberville's holds uh, continue. Uh, by the way, I had a terrific uh, lunch with um, a, uh, a a prominent and very thoughtful uh, UK uh, member of Parliament who is one. Of these guys who knows parliamentary rules literally around the planet and what he was basically saying is 
you know, that the Senate is following convention here uh, and and that there are all, all sorts of legislative uh, workarounds as somebody who also knows a lot of folks uh, in our legislature uh, as well. But, you know, his antics are continuing, backing up the process uh, and actually prompting the department to consider other sorts of, you know, folks who get promoted in, in, in uh, to sort of work around these holds. Uh, Jayapal's comments uh, accusing Israel of being um, a racist state on the eve of uh, Herzog's a joint session uh, address uh, became a lightning rod and something universally shot down. 412 me uh, members voted to support in Israel against nine uh, who voted against Jaipal being part of that. Uh, Eli Crane uh, had his own racist comments to make. Uh, and, and then speaking of racism, JFK, uh, RF, excuse me, RFK Jr., RFK Jr. brought his brand of conspiracy crazy uh, to, to the Hill, winning some plaudits from GOP members while drawing criticism from uh, uh, Democrats. And then on top of all of this, you have the George Santos uh, saga that somehow is still continuing, right? What does all of this mean for defense, ultimately? Like some are obvious and some are less obvious. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, you know, I think overall, you know, the, the lack of bipartisanship and the continued tempers that continue to flare over all these issues that you mentioned are very bad for defense and national security. So, you know, we'll start with Tupperville. I mean, look, people are still trying to get the good here. I mean, Senator Schumer has, has said, too, as part of the amendment process next week, and he will give Tupperville a vote on an amendment to repeal the Pentagon's abortion policy. Um, no guarantee there is that vote. No guarantee there is that vote that he will lift it. Right. And Schumer's now even saying that he hasn't ruled out keeping the Senate in session in August to start to move some of those um, uh, promotions, as well as some of the State Department holdups that are happening. Uh, Tupperville has spoken to Lloyd Austin several times. There's no breakthrough. Uh, but you know, at the same time, I think you saw earlier this week, Senator De uh, uh, Governor DeSantis, who's running for president, uh, announced his great military plan uh, and backed up Tupperville's uh, blockade on, on nominations, which I don't think was helpful. And of course, his military plan focused solely on ripping the woke out of the military, nothing about strategy, weapon systems or anything else. Um, um, House Armed Services Committee uh, Chairman Mike Rogers actually announced that he's going to be blocking all uh, Defense Department reprogram requests uh, in order to force a final decision on the home uh, for U.S. Space Command headquarters. He wants the, the department to make a decision until they do. Reprogram requests will be held up. Um, you mentioned <coughs> Congressman Jaipal. Uh, Huge misstep for the Democrats. Democrats are furious over this because they've really, this has taken some of the focus away from the chaos uh, from the House Republicans. Uh, she was taking part in a panel discussion earlier this week um, where that was interrupted by pro-Palestinian demonstrators. And she stepped up on that stage and I saw the clip and she said to those demonstrators, I want you to know uh, that what we have been fighting to make cl it clear that Israel is a racist state that the Palestinian people deserve self-determination and autonomy, and that the dream of a two-state solution is slipping away from us. Well, that did not go over well, of course, with Republicans, but with her Democratic colleagues. Uh, right away, uh, she, was, uh, she came to try and walk that statement back, saying, I do not believe the idea of Israel as a nation is a racist state, but that's nonsense. We, we heard what she said. Um, several Democrats released a letter um, uh, of concern, saying your comments were unacceptable. Uh, the Democratic leadership came out. Hakeem Jeffries, Catherine Clark, and Pete Aguilar put out a statement saying Israel is not a racist state. And the timing couldn't be worse because uh, Herzog, the president of Israel, was uh, scheduled to speak and did speak on Wednesday before a joint session of, of Congress. And it's just a long list and a series of slip-ups from Jaipal because this has been, again, you know, behind closed doors compared to the slip-up she made with her Ukraine letter many months ago. It was very ill-timed, right. pressing the administration for diplomacy on Ukraine, which really undercut the Democrats' effort to pressure the Republicans on Ukraine. And after all that, then she blamed her staff for it. So she continues to prove time and time again that she is really not ready for prime time and not ready to assume a, a serious leadership a position in her conference. And on top of that, you know, Herzog made his address to, um, to Congress. Um, he you know, responded to recent criticism, but emphasized the close relationship between the U.S. and Israel. Um, you know, a small group of progressive members boycotted the speech. Uh, Jayapal um, actually did not show up to the speech. So she's saying she's right. scheduling conflicts, but it makes it look like she boycotted the speech. And you did mention prior to speech, there was a resolution passed that passed overwhelmingly. Jayapal right. did vote for, but she you know, uh, had to clarify why she was voting for it, more to take the steam out of the Republicans' argument versus whether she really agreed with the resolution or not. So right. not smart politics all around. Now, you know, we talked about tempers flaring and uh, more chaos. You mentioned Eli Crane, something we neglected to mention last week that during the amendment debate in the House on NDAA amendments, he used the term 
colored people while debating one of his proposals. Uh, Congressman Joyce Beatty, a member of the Congressional Black Caucus, rose to have his words stricken from the record. And there have been a series of <clears throat> floor statements earlier this week being very, very critical uh, of what he said. And tempers are really flaring. At the same time, <clears throat> Republicans are saying that Democrats have a, an anti-Semitism problem and point to Jayapal, but then they have you know, RFK Jr. testifying before the House Judiciary Committee, <clears throat> you know, where he had said it earlier uh, in the week that uh, COVID-19 uh, targeted Caucasians and black people uh, and that people who are most immune are Ashkenazi Jews and the Chinese, and that the Chinese researchers are making ethnic bioweapons. Uh, you know, really crazy nonsense. And I asked a member of the Judiciary Committee earlier in the week, why the heck are we having RFK Jr. testifying for the House Judiciary Committee? I mean, and even he had no good answer for me. I mean, it's all about trolling right. Biden since he's running against Biden. And the purpose of his testimony was to talk about uh, uh, right. you know, uh, censoring. Uh, so... <clears throat> Tempers continue to flare there. And now the Democrats are going to put the Republicans in a tough spot because they're going to offer a privileged re resolution uh, to force a vote on centering Santos later this month. And that's going to put a lot of vulnerable Republicans, especially those in New York, uh, in a very difficult uh, situation. So, look, it's always darkest for the dawn. I talked to a member of McCarthy's leadership team the other day. He says, look, we're in the silly season, but when we get back in September, in the fall, that's when we're going to get down to serious business and things are going to get done. That remains to be seen. Michael, thanks very much for uh, the comprehensive take. Uh, Dove, I want to bring you in just briefly on this because we've got a lot on Russia to discuss in Israel, uh, as well as a lot going on, uh, obviously, in Asia. But uh, Judge Eileen uh, Cannon uh, has said uh, that the Trump case is going to go forward in May, which means in high political season, this will be playing in the background. It, it doesn't appear, to appear at all to have affected the former president's prospects. Indeed, it keeps inflating him as one candidate after another uh, appears to fizzle out. Ron DeSantis having trouble getting his campaign off the ground. I don't think that that means anything this early in the, in the battle because folks were saying, you know, Joe Biden has done far deeper into the race when all of a sudden it was it was really in the middle of the summer uh, that the Biden uh, campaign kind of uh, took off and brought it over the over the finish line. But what's your sense on what this May 24 date means and actually, you know, what it means for the Republican field and the race in general? Because the, well, the president has a lot of competitors coming out of the woodwork, each one of which, whether it's a Cornell West or an RFK Jr., they're taking votes away generally from Democrats as opposed to Republicans. Well, in the first place, what she did was essentially Solomonic split it down the middle. The government, of course, Justice Department wanted something in 2023. Trump's people wanted something after the election. So she split the difference and said it's May 24th. Now, that's after Super Tuesday. That's after a lot of the primaries, but it's not after the Georgia primary. Georgia primary is the next day. And the other thing about this, of course, is how does this preoccupy Trump as he gets closer and closer to this one? And, of course, to the likely indictment over January 6th, we don't know what Biden will do. And so in both cases, you may see some surprising changes. It's very, very clear that most of the country doesn't want either of these guys. And uh that we still won't know what a trial date is going to be like for if if indeed Trump is indicted for Ju uh, January 6th. And then he's got some other indictments out there. So this is hitting him from more directions than he's ever experienced before. And Cannon apparently was totally in charge of the court case. She seems to have really prepared. She gave both sides a hard time. So um, even though it's going to take place uh, in uh, an area that's Trump country, we don't know who the jurors are going to be. And not 100 percent of all those people living in that area are Trump supporters. So um, stay tuned for this one. Um, and uh, although uh, she was uh, appointed by uh, President Trump and is seen as somebody who didn't have the depth of experience that you normally would uh, give uh, that uh, uh, judgeship to. Um, and she tried to and she tried to disprove it. And uh, it seems that she really was on top of the case this time. Uh, we will certain, certainly time uh, will uh, tell a quick word uh, from our sponsors. HII sponsors our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors uh, our air and naval 
coverage. Uh, Jim, uh, you've been uh, very uh, patient last week. You joined us from, uh, I believe, uh, Logan Airport, uh, and uh, we very much appreciate it. Um, I want to ask you about uh, the uh, devastating Ukrainian attack on the Kerch Bridge uh, is apparently uh, Moscow's excuse for backing out of the deal that allowed Ukraine to export grain, uh, sending missile barrages now against Ukraine's grain storage uh, facilities, uh, and uh, indeed threatening any shipping that carries that uh, grain across uh, the Black Sea. Uh, it looks like Russia's strategy, right, is always somewhat forward-looking. Uh, the West demonstrated that it's resolved that it will be backing Ukraine no matter what. So now it's time to turn the world against the West by cutting off uh, the very fuel, uh, food supplies uh, that they ultimately need. My sense is we should be rushing Patriot weapons, uh, Patriot uh, air defense systems uh, to better protect these grain supplies, and then maybe even set up a maritime task force to escort ships through there, because at the end of the day, Ukraine is a sovereign state. It has its own 12-mile limit. Uh, and you know, throughout the Cold War, we operated uh, warships in the Black Sea, even though it was considered a Russian lake, uh, to basically emphasize that it is international waters and we have uh, a freedom of navigation there. Um, Patrick, I'm going to go to you next because I'm going to get your sense on this uh, as well, because Beijing is, is looking for these sorts of gray areas and where we back down, whereas our inclination is always de-escalate as opposed to doing something that maybe gets uh, the escalating party's attention and arrests maybe their, their arc of escalation. Pat, uh, Jim, what do you what do you make of this, and how does the international community have to respond to this at this point? Because if the Russians could destroy the entire grain supply, they will. Well, first, I'm not surprised that this has happened. In fact, I thought the Russians would try to pull a, a stunt like this a couple of months ago because they have this leverage of of the grain shipments and turning a tap on, turning it off. Uh, the Turks do this. A lot of countries. Uh, you know, they use this leverage of whether it's a vote at NATO uh, that can veto things or the, the UN Security Council. And so what the Russians are doing is they use this as leverage to get something they want. They, they number one, they do want to punish the Kerch Bridge uh, shelling. And so that was the trigger. But secondly, I'm sure the Russians have a list of things that they want. One of those is probably increased uh, shipment of fertilizer as well as grain out of Russia. And something uh, against the West and something against uh, Ukraine, you know, I'm sure there's a lot on their list and it's going to be up to the Turks and frankly, the United Nations uh, to deal with this, to try to get this uh, shipment uh, back on track. Uh, and, and we'll see what kind of cost uh, the Russians will put uh, towards this and they'll do it again in six months. That's the way this is. Uh, that's the way the Russians will run it. But I think we have to keep in mind, too, that. Uh, the folks that they're hurting uh, in, in, the, in the Middle East and Africa who depend on that grain are the same people that the Russians are trying to court in terms of, of supporting Russia, in terms of supporting China, to be against the West. Uh, and now, um, the, the, really, the West is going to have to make sure that th those folks know that their friend in, in Moscow, Putin, is the one doing this to them. Uh, and I think this is something that that we have got to take advantage of and make sure that it's not flipped back on the West as if it's our fault. But at the end of the day, we got to keep that grain going. Uh, the Turks are going to have to revisit this. Uh, this is a U.N. thing, too. I, I throw that into the mix. I realize that's that's not always effective. But this is this is they've got to do something here. It's not going to flip on just the West to deal with this. Uh, at the end of the day, of course, we'll be deeply involved, but I think it's going to have to be the UN being involved there. In terms of ships going in uh, to the into the Black Sea, yeah, I hope we do uh, go in and and show the flag and make sure that the, the understanding is that this is not a Russian lake. But in terms of, of um, a convoy duty and protecting the uh, Ukraine ships coming out, you know, I'm not sure the administration will go that far. I mean, this is an administration that's been reluctant even to provide attackums. I'm not sure they're going to put the U.S. Navy in harm's way uh, unless we're willing to fight the Russians, because the Russians could call our bluff uh, and we could find ourselves in a very tense, uh, uh, you know, place on the Black Sea. And I'm not sure that's what the administration wants to do. It feels good to want to say that. And I think we do have to make sure we operate there when we want to and where we want to. But in terms of active convoy usage, I think we've got to be in a different place. Uh, and ready to fight the Russians should they call our bluff on that. 
But at some point, right, you're still coping with the sense that the administration is doing enough to say we're doing something to help the Ukrainians, but not necessarily help the Ukrainians win. That's the impression I'm left with uh, consistently on this. Well, we could on the, send well, more Patriot batteries there. We could yeah, yeah, do yeah. a lot more. Yeah. No, I, I agree on on uh, more air defense for Odessa. I mean, absolutely. And I was wondering how they, you know, we, there's, we're short of Patriot. There's not a lot of Patriot to go around. And I think most of the Patriot is probably around Kiev. But, I, but whether it's Patriot or other air defense systems coming from the allies that have some good systems, uh, I think Odessa certainly needs to be uh, protected to keep the, uh, the wharfs and the ships there protected from, from attack. Yes, absolutely on that. But your point about uh, not giving them enough uh, Ukraine enough to win, I agree with you on that. I, that's, a, that's a broader and, and a, a, a issue where, uh, and we've talked about this for just about every session that we've had, Right. Um, in terms of providing attackums or F-16s or, or the um, Abrams. I mean, you know, countless examples. Uh, so that's absolutely the case. But I think providing convoys of uh, U.S. Navy ships uh, riding herd on the grain coming out of Ukraine, that's a whole different level. You know, and if we want to do it, we have to be in a place where we're willing to fight the Russians because they will test us. And the bigger disaster is if we run convoy duty, they test us and we don't do anything. So uh, so that's that's the problem there. Well, uh, and on the Black Sea, right? I mean, once they uh, downed uh, the Reaper, we moved our line back. So from their standpoint, um, the the tactic worked uh, to push us away. Although, uh, to be clear, I don't know whether or not we've moved any of those orbits uh, forward. Patrick, how does Beijing, how is Beijing seeing all of this, uh, because we might think we're playing a very, very sophisticated J- game of calibrated chess, a little, little bit like uh, LBJ's machinations during uh, the Vietnam War. And actually, your your audience is maybe drawing a very different message than you think you're delivering them. Well, the Chinese government officially has uh, completely rebuffed questions about uh, a Chinese reaction to the fact that their consulate in Odessa was damaged, at least slightly, by uh, Russian shelling. And also, there's some 60,000 tons of that grain uh, stranded that was intended to be shipped to China. Uh, and again, there's no response about Russia's crackdown or, or pulling out of the Black Sea grain deal uh, from China. Now, you have to imagine um, that they're very worried about their uh, partner, uh Putin. Um, For instance, consider Richard Moore, head of MI6's speech this week in the Prague, uh, saying that uh, the deal that was cut with Prigozhin was clearly something that Putin had to do to save his skin because he couldn't fight back on his own creation. So the Chinese undoubtedly worried about the stability of their uh, partner in Moscow. And yet, going back to your point, Vago, and agreeing with Jim, you know, on the need to do something here, um, I, I think let's propose a, an international convoy and invite the Chinese to protect, to feed the global South, um, you know, w- protect Chinese grain, um, to go in and provide strictly for humanitarian reasons, uh, an envoy, you know, a convoy for this grain. And when the Chinese reject it, at least highlight the fact that guess who's not helping uh, to either end this war, as they say they claim they to be, uh, or helping the global South. That's a great uh, idea. Uh, I, I think it's a terrific idea uh, as uh, as well. I mean, if you if you have it doesn't matter how big your military is, if you have an abject unwillingness to use it in matters that matter. Uh, and in this case, we are where we are uh, with the Russians. And, and and for me, I don't want to take unnecessary risks. But at the end of the day, you also have to take prudent risk. We were escorting tankers at a time when tankers were under risk and two of our ships got hit. And we kept escorting tankers. I mean, at the end of the day, that's uh, that's uh, part of uh, how uh, this is uh, supposed to work. And uh, and Patrick, you know, when you said uh, saving his own skin, Igor uh, Gherkin, uh, the Russian nationalist, has been detained, right? Because Putin is trying to tamp down on some of this uh, criticism. Uh, and so, right, the way this works is the more you tamp down on the criticism, especially when it's coming from 
those in your in ever escalating circles of power, uh, you you end up in a problematic situation as uh, the the dictator. Uh, Jim, let me uh, go back to you uh, and and sort of get your sense on Prigozhin, right? So he's he's not only is he back, but he and his forces are now in Belarus, and they are also training. Uh, Belarusian uh, troops, and in fact, uh, some of the Wagner leaders are are vowing to write the next glorious chapter uh, of this uh, war. Um, you know, we we you know you you told the audience over the last couple of weeks that you know Poland and a number of other frontline uh, nations are sort of bolstering their border defenses. How is it we need to think about the presence of eight thousand Wagner groups in Belarus training the Belarus army? Right at at the end of the day. It's not a cookie drive, right? Well, I, you know, it's, it's not. And uh, a couple things. One is I've also, I also understand Ukraine has been bolstering its lines as well. So I think they're, they're not going to catch anyone by surprise. But I think the numbers are pretty low. If you're trying to go into, into Ukraine from the West uh, using Belarusian forces, which my understanding is they haven't been real keen about getting involved in Ukraine. Uh, and so... Having the Progrosin, uh, you know, Wagner Group people training, they're a lot of cutthroats. I'm not so sure they're great trainers, you know. So I, I think I think when you look at it in reality, in terms of the quality of the Belarusian forces uh, and also their readiness to do this, uh, as well as the quality of the Wagner people in terms of training and uh, leading, I guess. Uh, I'm, I'm not so full of confidence in, in that group. And, I, and you know, Belarus has always backed away from problems. You know, uh, their leadership talks big uh, and, and pals around with Putin and has photo ops and, and this kind of thing. But uh, I, I tell you, I've not seen Belarus take a lot of action anywhere at any time. And so thinking that they might be a lightning force led by the 8,000 Wagner folks uh, going into uh, meet the Ukrainian forces that have proven themselves to be pretty tough. Uh, I, you know, I, 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 I don't see that as a, as a big threat. However, uh, it's, you have to take it seriously and you have to take uh, defensive measures and they are. Uh, but again, I think for the message for the West is this is another example of how things can go south on you quickly in dealing with Russia. Uh, and so in terms of providing assistance, in terms of providing aircraft, particularly uh, as well as ammunition, attackums, we've got to do that. Uh, uh, you know, no matter how worthy or not the threat seems to be. Uh, but that's the message to us is that this could take a strange hop, uh, and that's one of those one of those examples. What's happening in Belarus? But at the end of the day, um, I'm not so sure we're dealing with uh, top quality troops coming out of Belarus. But you don't want to underestimate. So I think we have to be ready for any any uh, potential. Uh, and I should note that uh, Erdogan uh, also uh, is uh, telling, uh, you know, is saying uh, that uh, Western countries need to take action, uh, you know, now that Russia is uh, taking this move on blocking uh, the, the grain deal. Uh, Dove, uh, great piece uh, in The Messenger. Ukraine needs cluster bombs uh, and much more against uh, Russia. Uh, you know, we're uh, looking at a situation where the Ukrainians now are starting to employ the U.S. cluster uh, munitions uh, that, uh, you know, has been criticized by some. But ultimately, Ukraine needs to shoot something at the Russians and uh, and, and specifically ask for cluster munitions. Just give us kind of your quick take on on where we stand on all of this from your perspective and what it is we need to do uh, next. Well, um, first of all, everybody's been saying for a long time that uh, the Russians have been using them, and of course, they've denied it. So when Putin said, well, if you use them, we'll use them, uh, they've been using them. And even if they had not been using them, if you're a Ukrainian, it's, it's what's the difference between that and a missile that's fired at your apartment house or your hospital or your school? So, you know, in, in a sense, that threat doesn't mean very much. The real issue is that uh, Ukraine does need a lot more and more than just cluster bombs. And the, the problem is that at, as yet, you know, the president, President Biden said that we're running out of ammo. The allies are. Well, there are ways to deal with that. One way to deal with it, uh, certainly at our uh, in our case, is uh, essentially to uh, tell industry to go to three shifts a day, seven right. days. Uh, we haven't done that. 
In fact, uh, I stand to be corrected, but I don't think we've invoked the Defense Production Act over this. Uh, we've invoked it over other things, but not over this. So there are things we can still do, which goes back to the point Jim and I and, and Patrick and you have made week after week that the administration does do what it, a, a lot. I mean, after all, we've given them a what? I think 40 billion worth right now. Um, but we haven't done as much as we could. And that has led to this conspiracy theory, uh, not just, by the way, in Europe, but around the world, that we really don't want Ukraine to win. We just want to kind of tie and then they'll negotiate. Well, it, I don't think that's true, but we're not doing anything to dispel the rumor. Uh, indeed, uh, very, very uh, frustrating. Uh, a quick reminder uh, to our audience to check out our weekly podcast, Cavus Ships, hosted by uh, our very own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with our very own Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our air power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that I uh, co-host with JJ Gertler. Um Patrick, a uh, very interesting series of comments by uh, the Pentagon's Asia uh, Pacific chief, Eli Ratner, who testified before the House uh, China Select Committee. Uh, he noted the industrial base is not delivering uh, weapons uh, to Taiwan. Uh, we have a sense that actually, you know, whatever it is they're making is more headed towards the United States uh, or, or uh, going to uh, Ukraine. Uh, give us sort of a little sense of uh, his uh, comments, because it is playing into uh, the Republican narrative that we need to stop helping Ukraine in order to better prepare uh, to better uh, prepare Taiwan to defend itself and better prepare for uh, China. So this was the hearing before the Select Committee on Strategic Competition between the U.S. and the CCP. Um, and yeah, Eli Ratner, along with uh, Dan Crittenbrink and uh, Thea Rosman Kendler from Commerce, three assistant secretaries, not the secretaries themselves, which is what the committee wanted, um, but three assistant secretaries. I thought Eli Ratner, Dr. Ratner, did a great job uh, both in his written testimony and in his presentation and kind of parrying questions. Um, you know, and the top lines for me from his from his remarks um, on what is the administration's defense approach to uh, dealing with China. Um, first of all, he underscored the threat. Look, the, the coercion, the growing risky activities in the Taiwan Strait, South and uh, in, in East China Seas uh, and beyond is a real threat. Um, secondly, he, he tried to make the strongest case possible that the Defense Department is investing in combat credible military capabilities, which which are the heart of uh, pre preserving deterrence. Uh, and he specifically said what we're trying to do is to penetrate China's anti-access area denial defenses at range and to be able to conduct strikes against a range of targets. Uh, he used the word adversary, didn't say China in that case, but the whole thing is about China strategy. Um, he also then went on to talk about how uh, the, the regional force posture, uh, the regional capabilities of our allies and partners that we're strengthening, our, the, the regional security networks that we're building, that's all part of reinforcing both deterrence and our ready defense capability that is going to stand up to China. Again, he put, he, he's got a lot of specifics in his text, uh, and, he, and he did a good job of pulling them all together. And then he pointed out the best way to get systems to Taiwan for their self-defense is by Congress basically putting money, not just this year, but in future years, against the authorizations they've approved. So forget about, frankly, FMS, because that process is not working well uh, in the defense industrial problems that we do face across the board, not just dealing with Taiwan, are, are something we've uh, baked into the system over decades. Um, he's saying, use this presidential drawdown authorization package by putting money behind it, and that'll help us expedite arms to Taiwan. It'll backfill the services budgets and so on. Um, and then he finally highlighted the importance of still maintaining open lines of military to military communications uh, with the PLA, um, something he knows uh, is uh, needed. In fact, I mentioned last week he had uh, that uh, in-office meeting with um, Ambassador Xia Feng, the uh, Chinese ambassador. Um, there is no movement uh, on China on, on this issue of trying to create mill-to-mill -mill dialogue again at any systemic level. Um, and uh, he's, he's pressing ahead. And there, there are some creative ideas about how to do that, by the way, that are being talked about. Um, but it's really a Chinese problem because the U.S. is ready to do this. Um, and China's balking at it. Um, and they're doing it because they think there's leverage to be gained uh, by not engaging in guardrail talks. Um, now, all of this um, presentation 
um, got a lot of pushback, as you might expect from this committee. Uh, the select committee is is a lively bunch. Uh, there's a lot of uh, bipartisan spirit to it, and I appreciate that. Uh, Chairman Gallagher began by talking about, uh, you know, good policies, frankly, are stuck in purgatory. You know, they're not coming out. Um, and he talked about, uh, you know, zombie diplomacy and other other challenges. The press release that the committee put out this morning said that we need uh, strength. Select committee presses by demonstration on lacking China strategy. Although the problem with that is that when you're doing five minute interventions or bursts from all these members, it's hard to talk about strategy. Um, you talk about single issues for five minutes. Um, nonetheless, a lot of good points were raised. Um, ranking member Krishnamurthy uh, also talked very much about the need for um, being able to compete and, and, and what, what else we need to do, because that's what Americans are demanding. We're not looking for a new cold or hot war with China, but we don't like Chinese and CCP aggressive behavior. So we have to stand up to it, whether it's hacking into our government or whether it's uh, dangerous, reckless military maneuvers, or whether it's uh, damage damaging our competitiveness and going after our companies trying to operate in the PRC. So it was a good hearing. It's online. Encourage people to watch it and definitely encourage people to watch uh, or to read uh, Eli Ratner, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Indo-Pacific Security Affairs uh, testimony. Um, let me uh, take you uh, to the vast array of other things that are going on regionally. Um, John Kerry, the president's climate envoy, or I should say a cabinet uh, uh, secretary, uh, a cabinet level representative of the United States, went to China, was completely rebuffed uh, on his uh, climate message. Uh, in, in the process, again, part of this, you know, I, I understand you want to engage um, with um, your adversary and have a dialogue uh, and have them pick up the phone. But but this is getting, um, you know, a, a little bit ridiculous in a, in a certain sense. Um, you've got uh, the Chinese foreign minister is missing, Quinn Gang, which is uh, very interesting uh, indeed. And then an enormous amount of other regional uh, and multilateral news that's that's going on. Give the audience kind of a quick update on where we stand on all of this and what is it uh, and what it means. Yeah, the U.S. engagement with China this past week uh, had a sharp contrast between John Kerry not getting a meeting with Xi Jinping, basically taking away home nothing uh, from those discussions on climate change with the, the world's largest emitter of uh, CO2 gases, China, which is responsible for about a third of greenhouse gases right now. Um, you know, China clearly doesn't want to separate that issue and reward, if you will, the United States by cooperating on an issue that... John Kerry saying, look, this is a universal threat. This has to be dealt with separately. And the Chinese are basically saying, sorry, we're, you know, we're going to link it uh, the way we want to, and we'll deal with it in our own pace. Uh, meanwhile, Henry Kissinger, uh, 100 years old, was greeted um, symbolically and importantly, not just by Xi Jinping, but uh, in the famous villa at the Dayutai State Guesthouse, um, where Kissinger and Zhou Enlai kind of opened relations 50 years ago. Um, and so, um, and they were, and they brought in this uh, giant peach confection with you know ninety nine peaches uh, baked into it. Uh, the hundred uh, being representative not just of Kissinger's age, but supposedly this hundredth trip he's making to to China. Um, so they really played this up as a big way to say, look, America, China and the U.S. can get along if you have the right approach, attitude, respect for China's interests, uh, as Kissinger does. Now they, they unfortunately, you know policies have moved so far beyond where Kissinger is on these issues that if that's the only way that China can get along with the United States, we're in trouble because uh, they're holding up this very high bar that doesn't really exist anymore. I mean, Kissinger in his time uh, struck very important strategic deals, but we've moved beyond that period of history and uh, it's a real challenge. Um, nonetheless, uh, it is still interesting to see how much Kissinger is uh, respected and revered, and, and you've got to respect a man at 100 to be still actually a player uh, on international diplomacy. So um, that's that's impressive. I think on a more serious note, uh, I think Taiwan is the crisis we're about to head back into, we're not that we ever left it. Um, but uh, the, the, the challenge here, and again, Ambassador Xiafang is making um, uh, threats uh, in, in Aspen this week the Aspen um, Strategy Forum, talking about the fact that um, the vice president of Taiwan, who is also the uh, candidate for the ruling Democratic Progressive Party of Taiwan, 
um, is going to make a transit through the United States when he goes to the inauguration of, of one of their diplomatic partners, Paraguay, in the middle of next month. And um, Xia Fang has said that is a red line. We're going to, he's, it is our highest priority. China's highest priority, he said, is to stop the transit. Um, and that's more inflated and escalatory rhetoric than we're used to. Uh, we've seen what's happened after, uh, you know, uh, Tsai Ing-wen's uh, transit and Pelosi's visit and so on. So we, I think we have to expect serious fireworks from, from China here next month. That's going to be a pretty fateful month because at the same time, you're going to have Prime Ministers Kishida and uh, President Yoon, uh, Prime Minister Kishida and President Yoon of Japan and Korea at Camp David for a trilateral summit with President Biden on August 18th. Um, and it'll be coming in the wake of this uh, next uh, Australian U.S. ministerial that's happening uh, next week in in um, uh, where is it? It's in Brisbane. Um, and so you have a um, uh, a lot of diplomacy and a lot of high level allies gathering at the time when China is likely to be escalating pressure against Taiwan. And they've already been sending a lot of uh, aircraft, as we've talked about, across the median line. In fact, it's even caught notice in the Philippines this week. They did a defense press briefing saying that the Philippines is monitoring on a daily basis the potential for outbreak of war over Taiwan, not because they say it is likely, but because they say it's a global issue and it's an issue of grave importance to the Philippines. Um, and I'll be in the Manila and during the time when this transit is happening. So it could be that the South China Sea sees some action from, from this uh, incident as well. You mentioned Chen Gong, the foreign minister has gone missing since uh, late last month. A um, lot of uh, sort of rumors circulating. There seems to be serious uh, 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 reports that he's had an extramarital affair and has a love child with a, a Chinese state broadcaster. Um, but there has to be more than that. Um, this is Xi Jinping's protege, who was on the fast track to getting promoted uh, to where he is now as foreign minister. Um, and the fact that he has gone missing and they're completely silent about what's happened other than to suggest he has health issues. It doesn't seem to be health. Health is a cover story. Um, clearly, Xi Jinping doesn't know what to do with his protege. Um, and, and he's in trouble. We don't know whether there's corruption or there's a difference on policy, um, but there's something going on here that is seems like more than an extramarital affair, uh, and it's got obviously implications for geopolitics. Uh, indeed, uh, a lot of uh, uh, I would say criminal Kremlin uh, logical uh, elements to this to try to figure out uh, what's uh, going on. I, I should uh, just mention, you know, two, two, two other things that are happening right now, right? So Talisman Sabre, the biggest exercise we do with Australia, it's also with, it's 13 countries altogether, just kicked off today in Queensland. Uh, you've got their Defense Minister Marles and U.S. Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro launched that uh, drill. Uh, and then you've got um, next week, before you have the Osman in Brisbane, you've got Secretary of uh, Defense uh, Austin in Papua New Guinea. He'll be the first standing uh, Secretary of Defense in Papua New Guinea. Um, and that's because we signed a major defense cooperation agreement just a couple of months ago that's going to give the United States military, uh, for the next 15 years at least, unimpeded access to stationing troops, vessels, ships at key ports, at, at Long Brum Naval Base uh, on Manus Island, that, which has the best kind of uh, anchorage uh, in the Southwest Pacific. Um, and uh, you know, storied history in terms of beating back the Japanese and you know using these bases. Um, so very important, and it's happening at the time when um, there's a Pacific Islands arms race uh, going into higher gear. When you consider that um, President Prime Minister uh, Sogavari of the Solomon Islands just got back from China, of course China and the Solomons signed a security pact uh, last April, April of 2022, and and that's what really. Uh, alarmed both Australia, the United States and others, that we better get into a more active posture in, in this critical Pacific Island uh, region because the Chinese are moving in with their security forces. Um, right. And so watch this space closely with, the again, Secretary of Defense Austin's visit. Meanwhile, you'll have Secretary of State uh, Blinken heading to New Zealand. He's also opening up the, a new U.S. embassy in Tonga uh, in the Pacific Island. So again, this uh, growing focus on 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 the south pacific in oceania 
uh, indeed, and and uh, something that's uh, overdue. I, I I think the United States has a tendency of overfocusing in some places and actually sort of leaving the field in too many other places uh, that matter. We have a tendency of getting involved in Africa only after things get derailed, as opposed to having uh, you know steady, sustained, uh, and and significant uh, investment. Then we get mad at the Chinese for sort of going into the void that we've created. Uh, and then it's it's entirely too responsorial. Uh, Dove, uh, we've got very little time left, uh, but it's very important issue. Obviously, uh, President Herzog, uh, largely ceremonial, but spoke to the U.S. Uh, Congress uh, and met with uh, Biden. Uh, we're told uh, Bibi Netanyahu was furious uh, at the snub, although it appears that he might be visiting uh, Washington uh, at some point. But uh, and and this as the United States is sending more ships and personnel uh, to the Gulf, uh, where Iran is working hard to seize ships. I wanted to get your take on all of this, but more particularly, Bibi Netanyahu is not backing down at all uh, from his uh, judicial reforms. He's trying to save his skin uh, and get himself out of being prosecuted for what appears to be actual corruption that sent some of his predecessors uh, to jail. Walk us through where we stand, because this is reaching a fever pitch. In in the time that we've been doing this show, the pushback on him has exponentially increased uh, as he was making, uh, you know, a primetime address uh, to the nation on the start of the Sabbath. And, you know, it's only gotten worse from there. The, the biggest issue is what's called the reasonableness clause, which essentially uh, allows the Supreme Court to invalidate a decision by the government that it considers simply uh, uh, beyond uh, reasonableness. Now, the, the biggest uh, point at issue is not necessarily Netanyahu's future at this point, but rather whether he can uh, restore uh, Aryeh Derry, a, a leader of the Sparty party, uh, back to being in the government when the Supreme Court said he should not be because he's been three times convicted for corruption. Uh, and of course, if this uh, legislation passes the uh, parliament, the Knesset, then uh, Bibi could be scot-free. Does sound a little bit like a certain candidate for president who would want to pardon himself if he got elected again. Um, so that has caused this major outburst. And there's other stuff going on in the Middle East, as you point out. We've sent more than 2,000 Marines and a bunch of ships uh, back to the region. Uh, because the Iranians are getting more and more aggressive. Uh, they, a couple of weeks ago, the Navy said one of the guided missile destroyers that we've got uh, stopped the Navy, the Iranian Navy, from uh, seizing commercial tankers in the Gulf. It's getting worse and worse there. And it doesn't help that the administration signaled uh, initially that, well, we were going to pay less attention in the Middle East. The trouble is uh, the Iranians don't particularly follow administration signals other than to uh, exploit them. So you've got that issue. And finally, what's coming to a head is the rivalry between Saudi Arabia and the Emirates. Uh, they're backing different sides in the Sudan civil war. Uh, the Saudis have been uh, literally poaching uh, over 500 companies who moved headquarters from uh, the Emirates to Riyadh and Jeddah. That causes a problem that we're not uh, able to solve because in part, uh, while we're not sending any arms to Saudi Arabia, we're sending F-35s to the Emirates. Uh, we need both of those countries, uh, and we don't seem to be able to figure out how to have both of them on our side. Dove and everybody else, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. hope you all have uh, a terrific uh, weekend, and thanks very much to the audience for joining us, as always. And a very special thanks to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible. Uh, we will be back on Sunday with the Business Roundtable. In the meantime, hope everybody has a great day and a great weekend. Thanks very much.